the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Jesse Gestand. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gestand. And so very glad to be with you on this Monday edition of Lifeline. You are looking at October 2nd, 2017, 505 on your phone, on your clock, in your car, in your home, etc. And I'm Jesse Gistand, and you are you. And uh, what shall we talk about today? First, I suggest that we go to our God in, in prayer, I suppose, for this horrific, um, terrible crisis, crime, uh, act of violence and hostility that uh, plagued Las Vegas here in the last few days. A gunman perched high on the 32nd floor of a Las Vegas strip casino, unleashed a shower of bullets down on an outdoor country music festival below, killing 59 people and leaving 527 injured as thousands of frantic concert goers screamed and ran for their lives. And obviously, if you're watching your news, there's so much to be said about it. And um, for the most part, I will let the news media outlets take advantage of another fire, another uh, alarm, another major catastrophic event, because that's how they make their money. What we will do is we will keep all of the wounded and injured in our prayers, and we will ask that God would be gracious enough to intervene on a number of private, personal, and public levels so as to somehow redeem this craziness. But what we will do as as people of God, as those who are pursuing a biblical answer to matters like this, is we will remind ourselves of what the Bible plainly says about the world that we live in. It is a world filled with tribulation, ellipses, troubles, afflictions, conflicts, tumults, pangs of suffering and death. That's the world that we live in. And the sooner we know this, the better we will be. We don't want to paint the present world system as somehow being a Pollyanna society that all it needs is a little bit of adjustment and, and everything will be all right. We don't want to stick our heads in the sand and deny the reality of massive potential harm and destruction that is at our doorsteps uh, every moment of the day. We don't want to pretend that the world is not exactly like the Bible plainly says that it is. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. Um, It's a sinful world. Let's just keep it real. It's fallen, it's broken, and it's sinful, and uh, and we've we've got to make the best of it. Now, um, rational, reasonable, thinking men and women who are uh, rooted in, in the biblical promises of God can uh, retain and hold in tension several things at one time. We can thank God for the blessings that we have every day, and we ought to because the earth is still filled with the mercy of the Lord. There will be many people at that particular horrific event who will sit back and think about how gracious God was in his own inscrutable way to have saved them and delivered them and kept them from the harm that uh, fell upon many lives. Uh, Those who were clean escaped and even those who are wounded but still alive will also say the same. They will They will reminisce on uh, many things about their life, and then they will think through um, what uh, they could have done differently, what they should have done differently, even as to whether or not they should have been there. All sorts of things of this nature go on in our conscience every day that we either observe or are a part of something as painful and as difficult 
as trouble that leads us to a conscious awareness of our mortality, of our vulnerability, of our futility, and of our destiny as well. It's just the way that it is. This is the evil that's in our world. We earned this when our parents ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they should not have done, and propelled the whole human race, including themselves, also into a dilemma of experiencing good and evil um, free from the full investiture and presence and guidance of God Almighty. We determined ourselves to walk away from the presence of God, the favor of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, uh, and his tutelage uh, to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. And so we're suffering that present consequence. There is, however, a, uh, a remedy for this. There, there is a solution, and there is definitely an answer from the Christian perspective, and that is um, to make sure that you and I, living and breathing every day, um, are uh, really rooted and grounded in a saving relationship with God the Father through God the Son, the Lord Jesus, so that no matter what happens to us in this life, we are absolutely certain that the end result of all that takes place is the eternal good of our souls at the hand of a God who makes all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called or the called according to his purpose. Um, And this is the message of the gospel that we share with our vulnerable fellow human beings who are outside of the scope of redemption, not yet believing the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Your children have to be told these things. They have to be made aware of how painfully um, uh, predictable life is outside of the grace of God in terms of uh, people letting you down, people betraying you, people saying bad things about you, people seeking to harm you for all sorts of reasons. There's never not a reason that is done. Don't ever say to your children, there was no reason for them to do it. It's always a reason. The reason may not be rational, it may not be right, it may not be logical, but there's always a reason. There is a cause to every effect under the sun, just so be sure of that. And we really do want to do the best we can to get at it. That's the purpose for your judicial system. That's the purpose for our psychiatric and our psychological industries that move into criminal events and crime scenes to find out why the man did what he did from a psychological evaluated perspective. They would certainly want to know if this man had some kind of sociopathic, psychopathic pattern of life that would have led to this, what the newspapers are calling an act of pure evil said the FBI Department of Homeland Security, um, working with local authorities and investigations. And, of course, President Trump and other governors spoke out as well concerning this horrific event, and as well they ought to, as leaders of our country, um, they ought to speak to these matters quickly and abruptly and concisely and with a level of reverence for life that um, that leads our citizenry to think about, um, again, the brevity and futility that life affords. So if you want to chat a little bit about it, sure, we can. But uh, but mark this for those of you who are biblical Christians. Understand that four horses are always riding. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Revelation chapter six, the white horse of the gospel by the grace of God is always going forth everywhere in the world that God has sent out his servants to preach the gospel. Men and women are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ, being rooted and grounded in the word of God, not delivered from the evil, but delivered in the evil. And then we have the red horse of war. You will have wars, rumors of wars. They will go on, not only large political wars, but the wars that go on locally, tribally, socially, personally, as is the case with this man. Obviously, he was uh, engaging in a war and he thought he would take it out on other people. This goes to show us how important it is for us to depend upon God to continually restrain evil, as the Bible says that God does. He restrains evil. And at sometimes he allows it to press forward because of our own volition and uh, and we we smart for it. Um, But it's designed for us to all appreciate every moment of our lives um, as we may have 
um, periods of, 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 pre, of reprieve from suffering and reprieve from pain and reprieve from calamity and, and judgments, such as the um, ecological judgments that have taken place here recently in Puerto Rico, Mexico, here in the United States, the Virgin Isles for which we are also praying and helping people as we possibly can. Why? Because it could happen to us. This is why we take these lessons and we learn from them, ladies and gentlemen, as much as we possibly can. Let them shape your attitude. Let them form your opinions. Let them be a basis for um, making your conscience tender and then instructing your conscience in truth so that you can walk in a way by which you are an honorable citizen because you are an honorable child of God, which moves us into our main topic for uh, today that I want to get into and see if we can get some uh, movement on it. Although I will take your phone calls on topics that you think are relevant and I think are relevant for our listening audience, since we do have the blessed privilege of about an hour and 45 minutes to discuss what we want to on this radio program, the Monday edition of Lifeline. Monday through Friday, you get to hear topics and subjects of uh, many and varied um Issues that uh, we think are important to our lives, and I think that they are a blessing by and large. Today, I want to talk about the Pope. Um, I don't know if you know, but the Pope has been basically uh, held um, accountable by his fellow bishops and uh, those underlings that are part of the larger Catholic Church uh, relative to some things that they are suggesting that he has engaged in that has led or has amounted to heresy. So, yeah, there are secular articles that are out. I don't know if you've heard about it. Um, uh, Rome, CNN in Rome, several dozen conservative Catholic scholars and clergy have charged Pope Francis with spreading heresy. A bold but perhaps futile salvo against uh, Francis and his reform-minded papacy. The widely publicized, theologically dense letter was delivered to the Pope with 40 signatures on August 11th, according to its organizers. It has since gained 22 more signatures and and was released to the public on Saturday. In a press release, the organizers, organizers say they speak for a large number of clergy and lay Catholics who lack freedom of speech. The letter does not accuse the Pope himself of being a heretic, but of supporting heretical positions on marriage, the moral life, and the Eucharist. I want to see if I can make sure that we kind of get the gist of it before we go to break, because this will be a good opportunity for us to talk about um, conscience, tradition, and scripture relative to what authority really is going to govern us individually and as bodies of professing believers. Uh, the letters uh, the letters organizers called their challenge a filial correction of the Pope by his spiritual sons and daughters. Church law itself requires that competent persons not re- remain silent when the pastors of the churches are misleading the flock. Conservative Catholic clergy and scholars said, specifically, the letter charges Francis with promoting seven heresies, most notably, though, his um, through his openness to allow some divorced and remarried Catholics to receive Holy Communion. This is at the heart of much of what they are concerned about. Scandal concerning faith and morals has been given to the church and to the world. The letter states it accuses the Pope of imposing strange doctrines on the faithful um, and asks him to publicly correct his teachings. The lightning rod for complaints is the Pope's 2016 document, the Amoris Laetitia, which has opened the possibility for some divorced and remarried Catholics to receive communion and the differing interpretations of the document which conservatives say has uh, sown confusion among Catholics. A press release accompanying the letter calls it an epic-making act with no precedent since 1333. It's a long time. (laughs) That may be true, Catholic historians say, but likely overstating the letter's actual significance. A number of the signees are members of a traditionalist group that has already broken away from the Catholic Church. Still, the heresy charge crystallized some conservatives' deep anxieties about Pope Francis, especially his teachings and impromptu statements about how to apply century-old Catholic doctrine to the complexities of modern life. 
last year, four cardinals, in a letter known as Adubia, asked the Pope to clarify some of his points raised by the Catholic scholars and priests. And so uh, the Pope didn't respond, and he's not presently responding, and so this matter doesn't end. Um, who's behind the heresy? None of the heresy letter signers are cardinals or bishops in good standing with the Catholic Church. The most prominent is Bishop Bernard Fillet, the head of the Society of St. Pius X, a traditionalist group which broke away from the Vatican under Pope John Paul II over doctrinal issues. In some ways, Fillet's uh, participation is curious. As a letter organize, organizer wrote, Francis has sought to welcome the conservative society of St. Pius X, provided they agreed to certain church teachings. There's another guy, Ettore Gatti uh, Tedeschi, or Tedeschi, former president of the Vatican Bank, is also a signee. So there are more and more assignees that are uh, rising to question the Pope on this issue because uh, basic uh, Catholic doctrine suggests that people who divorce— and remarry without first going through the the normal process of having an annulment so that their marriage can be considered sanctified uh, in the eyes of the Catholic Church as one of the seven sacraments. For the Catholics, uh, marriage is viewed as a sacrament by them that they should have no right to the table. And uh, apparently uh, Pope Francis is uh, exercising some liberties that are pushing up against the traditional doctrines. Now, what I'm going to do when I come back from the break. So I'm going to share with you an article by a Protestant whose uh, perspective on this grants really the central basis for what I want to discuss with you, and that is the conscience. The article is called The Pope's Crisis of Conscience by one Ben-Hur Arcayan, and, uh, and he makes some very insightful statements about how actually what the Pope has done here is a kind of new diet of worms. Why do I say that? Well, remember, it was Luther of whom the Reformed churches will be celebrating in about 30 days, a little less, 29 or so. Um, October 31st, um, it may have been somewhere around 1516, 1531. Luther nailed the 91 theses on the doors at Wittenberg in Germany. I'll get the number right as I take a break. But uh, it was the beginning of the watershed battle over uh, really what is the authority? 95 theses. What is the, the authority for the Christian? Is it the conscious alone? Is it tradition? That is the uh, traditions of the Catholic Church? Is it scripture? Is it all of them together? Um, and so we're going to talk about that because this goes to show you how um, the Catholic Church doesn't have a corner on unanimity. It doesn't have a corner on um, solidity of, uh, of sort of a, a, a monolithic understanding of Scripture and certainly not the application thereof. And it can also show you and demonstrate that there's no such thing as an infallible pope. Um, not that if you have a proper understanding of it, we ever believed in one. Uh, except the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But uh, there's just no such thing as uh, a so-called leader of the church uh, being above the scriptures or um, free of error. And and what do you do about that when any of us are inclined to err? And we certainly are, are we not? Uh, well, we're going to talk about that, and then I'll take your phone calls on theological, practical, social issues. Um, on the Monday edition, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine is the number to call. Yours truly, Jesse Giston, on this topic or others on this Monday edition of Lifeline. We will be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistan. All right, we're back. Three lines open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Before we go to the phone lines, I do want to read this article to sort of crystallize our thoughts around, okay, so what's the big deal with the Pope being um, held accountable by his own bishops? Well, it's not so big in the sense that it is the Protestant's problem or the secularist problem or anybody's problem per se, but it is a good opportunity for us to really deal with the question, as I stated before the break, um, if a person is uh, suggesting to hold to a life of piety and submission to God and serving God, et cetera, et cetera, 
what is the sphere and realm or our central point, our sanctum by which that individual has convictions uh, and determinations and, uh, and and beliefs? Is it not his conscience? Of course it is. The conscience is that which God has given every moral creature by which the law of God is written on that conscience, and that conscience then is informed by many different things, whatever those authorities are, um, relative to the fundamental law of God written on it. And it will determine, it will shape, it will affect um impede or strengthen that person's moral and ethical choices and therefore their moral and ethical behavior. The conscience is everything in that regard. For instance, the fellow that shot up all these people, obviously his conscience was not working in a healthy way. The Imago day in him was extremely dim to the point where we call him a sociopath or psychopath. In other words, he does not have a moral ethical compass that stops him from doing something that is wrong at this kind of level. Of course, we would not want human beings on planet Earth walking around with that level of reprobation whatsoever. That would be hell on Earth for sure if we were all operating out of that level of disengagement with the moral ethical compass that God has given us all. We do know intuitively right and wrong. That's what the Bible teaches us both in the old and the new. But let's just do the article, you guys, because I do want to have an informed conversation with Protestants and Catholics and whomever about this. The article is The Pope's Crisis of Conscience, again, by Ben-Hur Arkayan, and he quotes, and I quote, rather, ever since August 11, when uh, 40 Roman Catholic leaders presented a 25-page letter to Pope Francis, the issue of Christian conscience has generated discussion. Conscience is recognized as the inner core of a person that identifies morally and evil choices in accord with right reason and God's word. Good basic definition. The discussion, however, has opened a can of worms, no pun intended. The word conscience appears several times in the document, which seeks to correct the Pope's recent statements on divorced Catholics, but it mostly does so in in quoting Francis himself, who uses it to justify greater latitude regarding irregular situations in the church, mortal sins and heresies, according to other Catholics. Therefore, rather than merely evoking conscience as a means of inspiring obedience, the Pope also claims it as a way of recognizing what for now is the most generous response. The specific issue is whether divorced and remarried persons are welcome to the Catholic communion table. Catholic teaching has long been clear that they are not. But Francis seems to be edging away from this view, and both his position and also his justification of it are mirrored by Cardinal Kevin Farrell, recently elevated by Pope Francis to lead the newly established uh, dicastery for laity, family, and life. Provocatively, Farrell describes the reception of the communion by the divorced and remarried as a process, watch this now, of discernment and of conscience. In other words, he's saying we're going to leave that up to them. But the most interesting is the use of conscience by the letters drafters who nail Francis to the wall over his overtly filial expressions toward Martin Luther. They go the other underlying issue. I guess Francis is a little bit more Lutheran than he is uh, Catholic. They write with deliberate and unintended irony. We feel compelled by conscience to avert to your holiness's unprecedented sympathy for Martin Luther and to the affinity between Luther's idea of the law of justification and marriage and those taught are favored by your holiness. Pope Francis and his conservative critics both appeal to conscience. A question arises. What supreme authority rightly governs Christian conscience, particularly in disagreement? Now, this is the nexus of our consideration and contemplation, ladies and gentlemen. What supreme authority rightly governs Christian conscience, particularly in disagreement? In the face of this question, contemporary Roman Catholic faces a crisis, the origin of which reached back to the 16th century. The term captivity of conscience in April 1521, Martin Luther appeared before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in the city of Worms to defend his teaching. The thought of standing before the emperor provoked such dread that Luther prayed through that night, begging God for courage. 
It was the next day when the gauntlet was thrown down before him that Luther used the C word. That is conscience, okay? Don't go anywhere else. Unless I am convicted by scripture in plain reason, I do not accept authority, the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther's defense was not a modern plea for the supremacy of the individual conscience or free will. Please mark that. It was rather an entreaty for scripture supremacy. In short, Luther at the worms illustrates the authority of God's word as the rightful captor of our conscience. His Bible-centered vision of conscience may be compared with the Roman Catholic's orientation expressed by Ignatius Loyola, who memorably put it this way. This is the way this one Catholic put it. What seems to me white, I will believe black if the hierarchical church so defines. So Loyola's conscience was captive to the hierarchical church, while Luther's was to the word of God. This is the challenge that I'm putting out to you, and I do want to hear from you on this, if I'm not speaking way over your heads, and I trust that I'm not. But what happens when the hierarchical church is headed by a Jesuit who prefers shades of gray to black and white. What do Catholics do when their vicar of Christ and living symbol of unity is moving in the wrong direction? Can they really distance themselves from the Pope without cutting off the branch on which they sit? Can they distance themselves from the Pope and still be Catholic? That's the battle. The opening of a can of worms. There are no easy answers to these questions, but there are insights worth remembering in conversation with each other. And here are three. Number one, the magisterium is not fully clear. The magisterium, that is the body of leaders that help determine and regulate and enforce doctrine in the Catholic Church. I can feel the ire of Catholic apologists fomenting as I write these words. But if the current brouhaha illustrates anything, it's that hierarchical church teaching is not black and white. While Protestants debate the finer points of Scripture, Catholics debate over sacred tradition. Submitting to the magisterium settles neither dispute nor difficulty. He's right. This is what I've said for years to Catholics who boast in the superiority of tradition over Scripture when we talk about holding to sola scriptura, and they argue that's not biblically based, and what we say is is very historically precedent as the safest route to go when men err all the time. It's better to trust the Scriptures than the conscience of a body of leaders who are obviously and historically proven to be fallible. Here is how the late Avery Cardinal Doles explains the situation in his book on the magisterium. The meaning of magisterial decisions, in turn, has to be studied with reference to the way they are understood and interpreted by pastors, theologians, and the faithful. The study of the magisterium, therefore, would be incomplete without some attention to the process of reception. The process of reception, whether from scripture or tradition, is real and ongoing for Protestants and Catholics alike. In other words, their source and method by which they determine what's right and wrong or what's heretical or orthodox. Point number two, and I'll be taking a break here and then I'll come back. I'll get Maria and whoever else wants to call on this topic. Pope Francis is not an evangelical ally. One of the chief reasons why Pope Francis frustrates Protestants is that we agree with him at some points, but he invariably lets us down where it matters most. For example, since we don't regard marriage to be a sacrament, an ordinance that imparts redemptive grace instituted by our Lord Jesus in the new covenant. It's easy to resonate with Francis pastoral sensitivity toward those which have been divorced and remarried. I guess so. There is other words. There is in other words, some truth in the filial corrections analogy between Pope Francis and Luther on the nature of marriage. But when it comes to the gospel, the message of salvation for those who personally repent of sin and trust in Christ, this Pope seems incapable of cutting it straight. I agree. Francis is gifted at evocatively describing the existential needs of the human heart. In other words, he is definitely a pro-humanist. But as I've written elsewhere, when it comes to addressing the need for the gospel, he tragically lets the side down. 
I would agree with the Arthur on that. And I don't know what your thoughts about it are, but I do have three lines open. What is it? Your conscience without the Bible? Your conscience with the Bible? Your conscience with traditions of men without the Bible? Or your conscience with traditions of men and the Bible? Which is the safest way to go? Is it just your conscience? As the secularists would believe, the atheists would believe, the the agnostic would, would, would assert to believe? Or is it your conscience and the word of God? Or is it your conscience, the word of God, the traditions of men? Or is it your conscience and the traditions of men? This is the difference between a Bible-believing Protestant and a Catholic with regards to where we draw the line and establish our convictions of what's right and wrong. Three lines open, one 367 I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. And we are back. The time is 542. I have three lines open. I want three more people to call. one 888 Somebody engage me on what we are talking about. I, I know you got to understand how important this opportunity is. I want to know whether or not you understand the distinction between conscience alone, conscience and the traditions of men, and conscience and the word of God. Or conscience and the tradition of men only, or conscience and the word of God only. These are really uh, sort of the foundational issues by which Christians not only agree, but disagree. And, And ladies and gentlemen, you may say, well, I'm not a Catholic. This is not really an issue for me. It is an issue for you. It really is an issue for you. If you were to press through church history, you would understand that it's an issue for you because if you are part of a local body, Hey, even if you're a family, let's say you're a husband and a wife and you have a family and your family um, is a a Christian family and you guys are dealing with uh, reading and learning and interpreting the Bible. How do you rightly and fairly interpret the Bible with the conscience of everybody in your family? Does one person exercise a papacy over the whole household and so control the conscience of the wife and the children that the wife and the children do not get an opportunity to do what the Protestant church has taught uh, for years now since the Reformation, the importance of private judgment relative to interpreting the scriptures? Do you understand what I'm getting at? You can listen to someone say, thus saith the Lord, and what they are saying may be right, might be wrong, but at the end of the day, you still have to be persuaded whether or not what that person is saying is right or wrong. Or will you simply yield your conscience to what they say simply because they are the authority? You see how you can have the practicing Catholic magisterium in your own home? All right, get on the phone lines and call me, one 367 Let me go to line one and talk to the angel Maria in Oakland. Maria, are you there? Yes. Thank you for your patience. Well, thank you for your commentary here. So what is your question um, or observation? Well, just that, just that um, it's so clear, Scripture is so clear. I mean, Jesus came, and, and she was the model, the model of, of understanding. You know, he was very lenient to the poor that did not have access to the Word or the education. So, so for those, I, 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 I would see how, how our, our leader, I'm Catholic, sure. um, is, is given to... Leniency in, in that respect, but I would think that he would apply the same um, judgment that that Christ used in 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 being lenient to the ones that have do not know the law, and and more severe to the ones that do know it. Um, so so that would have to be really examined. Um, on a case-to-case basis, mm. in my opinion. Okay. But so, that's the scripture, scripture um, would be the winning point. Okay, so... I so mean, No, excellent. Basis. No, I, I'm sorry. Are you done? Yes. No, so I, I was sitting and thinking through the way you have parsed and um, explained the distinction between um, 
the behavior of the Lord Jesus and uh, and the behavior of the Pope. Obviously, as a Protestant, I would disagree with the analogy. You know that um, in terms of the Pope's fallibility, Christ's um, infallibility would make it um, even um, a, a, a non-issue as to whether or not he would be buttressing against Scripture. He wouldn't. Um, he would, however, be buttressing, as he frequently was, Maria, against traditions of men, as Matthews 15 puts it, because the rulers were constantly charging him with heresy for things that he was saying, no, this is not the way the word of God is to be interpreted relative to what you are doing. And at the end of the day, we have come to discover that they were wrong, even though they put him to death. Now, with, with regards to uh, uh, Pope Francis, what is um, interesting and curious to me, and I'd like to hear your opinion about it, um, sh- should he uh, submit himself to, uh, to, to the Catholic clergy as they have a right to call him on the carpet to explain himself as to whether or not he is practicing sound Catholic uh, doctrine and tradition relative to this matter of um, divorce and remarriage? Should he, should he submit to their charges and explain himself? Well, um, how diligent were they in establishing establishing support for a couple that comes to them asking to to marry them? How supportive and how diligent are they in every aspect of of a life together? Well, I think you're asking too much. Well, I'm saying if if if. If my church, and and I know from my marrying many years ago, mm-hmm. um, they they have very light. Um, life is too complicated, and 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 it needs it needs purchasing. It we need um, really really to know and that this person that is getting together. Have the witch about them and know what they're getting into, and and go. I mean, really, do do a a good job of of opening their eyes as as to what they're getting into, okay. and 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 know that a lot of people have made it because because the more you grow in in Christ, the more you grow in in love. <laughs> I got that. I got that. I think you stated that earlier. I got that. I don't think that really is addressing the the basic contention of the bishops and the um, the uh, opponents of, but, of Francis. I mean, the bishops who who is who is assigned to to. Um, well, you you have to do your research. So I'm, we're just I'm posing just a topic. It's out there. It's been out there since August 11th. You're going to have to do your research, and I'm sure it's going to come up more because it's not going to go away. Um, the the so let's say let's say the premise is correct, and I'm going to have to let you go. I think I got you. You're very clear. I I see what you're saying. You're talking about being sensitive to those who would approach the Eucharist from the standpoint of being remarried, et cetera, et cetera, and it has to be done by a case by case situation. I understand that argument. Um, I have no qualms with it. Um, I think what the uh, different um, bishops are asking uh, and those who have signed the petition, over 46 of them, some very uh, notable men who nevertheless having withdrawn from um, uh, official Catholic association uh, may have a valid point. And I think they do. If the if the if the doctrine is clear um, about how one should be um, viewed, who is divorced and remarried and did not have a legitimate uh annulment in the Catholic Church so as to uh, acknowledge that second marriage. It's not a matter of the motive of their hearts or their genuineness or their lack of faith, etc. It's a matter of the protocol of the church government, the bishop, um, the uh, priest, in terms of allowing people to approach the Eucharist. So thank you for the call. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I'll talk to Tanshia Lee and Stefan on this topic, too. And then let's see if we can cross this over into just the practical areas, because at, at heart, our discussion really is around um, how do we how do we juggle handle the tension of conscience, scripture, and tradition uh, relative to at the end of the day uh, being either in compliance with the larger social culture of the church or within the framework of our own hearts? That really is going to be the discussion throughout the course of this next hour as well. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. I'll be right back. 
And now, back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. And we're back. The time, 554, on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let me go to line number two and talk with Tanshia and Hayward. Tanshia, what is your question, comment, or observation on our topic? Hi, Pastor. I wanted to um, speak on the idea of your conscience um, with the Word of God, your conscience just by yourself, and your conscience with um, tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, um, your conscience being governed by the Word of God is the best. Um, your conscience just by yourself, it's going to be it's going to be shaped and formed by your experiences in life. Mm-hmm. For example, if you experienced in life growing up that it's okay for you to divorce somebody for irreconcilable differences, then you're going to think that that's okay. And in your conscience, you'll be fine with doing something of that nature. Right. And that's again, goes with the traditions. Those things, they change and they change with um, time. They change with um, what the society is doing. It, but the word of God, it always remains the same. So it's always best to have your conscience be governed by the word of God because the word of God never changes. And even if you do conscience by yourself, it's, it's also going to be governed by what feels good to you. Sure. You may be able to um, you may be able to say no to some things, but all it takes is for that temptation that is way greater than your self-discipline to come along and you will see yourself give yourself over to that temptation as opposed to sticking to what what your conscience is saying. You will justify it so that you can fulfill that temptation or what have you. So that's that was my take on um, the question on your conscience with the different aspects, the Word of God by itself and uh, with tradition. Right, and you sound like a Protestant. Oh, do I? I don't. <laughs> okay, so now you now you're getting ready to learn some church history. You are a you are a Protestant. Bless you. <laughs> Let me go to line number three and talk with Sister Lee in Palo Alto. Lee, are you there? I am. Thanks uh, for taking my call. Uh huh. Well, you, you you understood? How long were you on the line? I mean, how uh, long were you listening? Since the very beginning. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is that. Um, it isn't just me and Jesus. So if I have a conscience and if I read the Bible, and if even if I read the Bible clearly and correctly, it really isn't just me and Jesus. We need the body of Christ. And it wasn't just recently, it wasn't even since August that these theologians, and I think there were uh, over 60 or 80 of them, I can't remember, that signed that document. Um, it wasn't, it didn't start with that. There were four cardinals that are uh, traditional, that were, uh, are very faithful to Scripture in terms of marriage and remarriage mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. communion. And they did kind of like a friendly letter to Pope Francis to ask him to clarify. Sure. Pope Francis never responded right. at all. And that is something that is so bad, because we do need each other. And if it, it's not even acting in good faith if somebody just ignores you. And actually, two of those four cardinals have since died mm-hmm. because they were elderly. And I think Caffarato was the last one that, that just died, and mm-hmm. the others are still waiting. So all they're asking for is a meeting to clarify whatever, and it's so important, and you just don't do that. I've never heard of such a thing. And the problem with individual interpretation because we do need each other, is I've been struggling over Luke chapter 12, verse 47, I think it is, because somebody brought to my attention that Jesus said, and it's true, I just forgot about it, I came to set a fire upon the earth. And, you know, not necessarily to bring peace, that there will be divisions. And that fire, what the heck is that fire? And I'm thinking that it's judgment. And it's so important to get this right, because no matter what, our teachers are going to be judged, the Pope's going to be judged based on, you know, and they will be judged harder because they're teaching and others are following them, especially if you have blind faith in a person it's so bad. So we, we need the Bible, we need our own conscience, but we also need each other. And this idea that Pope Francis is just ignoring four cardinals that just wanted a clarification to what he originally wrote, and it wasn't even in the body of what he wrote. It was a footnote that's very misleading. 
and and some liberal uh, Catholic theologians, uh, clergy, are taking and running with it in a different direction, and he's not setting it straight, and that's not acceptable. Right, and so you see what's going on is that um, his kind of freedom to share things that may have more of a political acceptance um, created an ambiguity around doctrine, um, yes. which he was supposed to clarify. Um, yes. This this is not exclusive to Catholicism. This is the only reason I brought the topic up, because this is a great opportunity for us all to understand how that first and foremost from leadership position not just the common laity from leadership position where there is a precedent of teaching or commentary about uh, practice and protocol on the part of Christians that's coming from leadership's mouth. Not if it's done one time, um, anybody can say anything one time, but once you realize that he's setting a precedent in the way he's shaping his view or opinion or interpretation of a particular practice, and it's going against, <clears throat> whether this is Catholic or Protestant, it's going against the traditions or the the um, the consensus of interpretation held by the Protestant church. Um, it's He's going to have to be called on the carpet for it, those who have the right to challenge him uh, should do it discreetly, wisely, et cetera. As you said, these men did. They 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 rendered a filial um, charitable request that he would explain himself, and he should have explained himself because as other uh, bishops and those who spoke into the same matter said, um, his words weigh heavy, and they will, in fact, lead others to take what he said and run in a direction that these uh, men feel will be absolutely heretical in terms of um, Catholic response to uh, to Pope Francis as a law. As a larger discussion, I simply uh, broaden the scale to um, Protestants and and, and Christians in general, because, in fact, the same thing could happen to us, whether it's in the local church or whether it's in a family. This is true. And Vatican, too, if you're uh, kind of zeroing in on the Catholic, what's happening now, Vatican, too, gives responsibility to everyone. So that means people in the pews are responsible if you know something is wrong, you have an obligation to speak up, and quite often they don't. And I've seen that even in the non-Catholic Christian churches, the Protestant churches and all of them, the people in the pews quite often don't like to speak up. They may know something's wrong, but they just kind of deal with it. Right. And, and uh, as the article had stated, actually, uh, it, it used the phrase or qualifier, um, um, competent persons yeah. should actually be individuals who deal with it. And, and what that means there, and I fully understand that being in leadership for many years, that it, any person in the congregation is not necessarily qualified to address the issue. It needs to actually be done yeah. by competent persons, competent. right, yeah. who who have a very solid sense mm-hmm. of conscience, scripture culture, culture, church, etc., and then they know the proper protocols or procedures by which a thing is addressed so that we are not crying, you know, uh, fire in a crowded room because that can happen so easily. And therefore, you know, you just can't take any voice that that protest against something. But it should one should have the freedom uh, and right to see something. And once it's clear that it's a precedent, this is the way I lay it down when I deal with leaders in the church has to be a precedent. The man could it couldn't be that the man said one thing one time and then you want to jump on him. That's a whole problem with, you know, a lack of charity among the body, if that's the case. But on a more uh, uh, um, on a more consistent level, as was the case with Pope Francis on a number of issues, uh, the Catholic Church should have held him accountable to some of the things that he's saying, because even those of us who are non-Catholic can see where he's buttressing up against Catholic tradition. But to speak once more before I go to break on the, the issue of conscious scripture and um, and and tradition, uh, and I will go slash tradition and uh, and the body. Okay, I'll use that example. Yeah. It's it's still very important to understand that the the body is not equivalent to scripture. Um, it's just not, uh, and this is where there will be a radical distinction between um, um, clear-headed Protestants and. Um, and, and those who are not Protestants, when we say Scripture alone, because we really do believe that uh, a person's conscience, when listening to 
the traditions of the church, listening to um, advice from everyone around, <clears throat> and it does not appear, even though it may be consensus, that what they are saying is corresponding with what the Word of God is saying. The Christian must not succumb to the larger traditions or body of believers so as to overthrow his or her conscience and and simply acquiesce because the majority said it. This is what the law said when Jesus, when God said, Yahweh said, um, through the voice of Christ, uh, Yahweh Yeshua, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. In other words, Israel was a perfect example of that in the wilderness where the mob turned Aaron against God to create an idol. Um, so we have to be very careful to know that there is a supremacy in Scripture. And one of the things we argued from a Protestant perspective is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. We do believe that the Scriptures are clear enough in all essential doctrine for a man or woman to be led by the scriptures to what we call private judgment, so as to not violate their conscience by the uh, authority or hyper-authoritarian imposition of those who may be in leadership over them. Um, This is what we believe is the safest route, though we do not at all exclude the, um, the need to and the right for others to speak into our conscience, as you are saying. You understand what I'm getting at, Lee? I, I do and actually that it's a point well taken about the the crowd and in terms of like what happens what's happening now yeah those four cardinals and these theologians they're just asking questions asking for it to be addressed and sometimes what the holy ghost does and i'm sure you know this is just because the holy ghost is the present true vicar he's the vicar the spirit of christ is the vicar of the church he will hedge us and won't let us get away with certain things until we address them because Mm -hmm. we can be uh we can just do what we want to do, you know, and, and God will say, hey, no, 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 I'm going to hit you this thing in. You got to talk about this. Yeah, and it's good that's what's happening now. So, so I, thank I think you so. For addressing it. I do. No, I think so. Thanks. I got to take You're a welcome. break. Stephanie, you hold on. We'll talk about the sacraments when you, oh, Sacramento, sorry. We'll talk with you when you get back. Three lines open, one 888 We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com. 